This is the Doctor's Wife Podcast, episode number 82, 10 Ways to Organize Your Financial Life, with special guest Ryan Inman of the Financial Residency Podcast. The Doctor's Wife is a podcast for women who have supported their husbands through a decade or more of medical training and are now ready to find more fulfillment in marriage, more fulfillment in motherhood, and more fulfillment in their personal goals. You are really good at taking care of everyone else. It's time to take care of you. Yes, you are a doctor's wife, but you are so much more than that. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the podcast. We have a special guest today, Ryan Inman, who is the host of the Financial Residency Podcast. He is here today and he's going to talk to you about 10 ways to organize your financial life. And if you're anything like me, when you hear that title, you're like, snooze, boring. (laughs) I don't want to deal with that. But I must say that Ryan is very engaging and he actually breaks these um, ways to to organize your financial life down to digestible bites that are um, applicable. And so I want you to to consider that this podcast is exactly what you need. I do want to say that um, it was recorded before COVID-19. And so I just want you all to know that because we don't mention the virus at all. And we don't, and we talk about, you know, saving for vacations with your family and things that maybe people aren't as focused on right in this very moment. But I think that you will find what Ryan teaches in this podcast so useful to you. And what I love about him and his business is that he works solely with physician families. And so I know that that's a concern for a lot of you, like with money, it's like, it's such, we have such unique circumstances with money as physicians and physician families that it's nice to know that there's somebody out there that deals with exactly what we're going through and that knows our unique circumstances. So I know you're going to find this really helpful. So without further ado, here's my interview with Ryan Inman. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Doctor's Wife podcast. I have a special treat for you today. I have a guest, Ryan Inman, who is on the show, and he is the producer of the Financial Residency podcast. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me. You make me sound so cool. I'm a producer. <laughs> producer. <laughs> tell why don't you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself? Like just brag a little bit about your what you do and how you know your podcast and all that. Oh, I don't like bragging. I'm not that type of person. But I'll just say like, <laughs> hi, I'm Ryan. I uh, I run the financial residency. I'm the producer now. I'm totally you. <laughs> I'm the producer of the financial residency podcast. Um, it's really aimed for physicians to help them take control over their money. Um, fortunate enough that a lot of people listen. So it's a top 75 podcast on iTunes for investing. Um, I run the business Physician Wall Services, where I'm a fee-only financial planner, my team. And uh, we work with physicians all across the country, helping them take control of their finances. So there's a free option and a paid option, but uh, it's it's been super fun. Uh, I'm married to a pediatric pulmonologist with the Navy. So as we were chatting offline, it's a government job, all the perks, but can't be deployed, which is nice. better for me with two little kids and a five and a three-year-old and just loving life. Awesome. We're, well, we're really excited to have you on the podcast. So you're going to talk to us about 10 ways to organize our financial life. And I should say you only work with physician families. Is that correct? You, I'm, I'm the crazy guy that is married to a doctor, 
only works with doctors. <laughs> That all my friends are doctors. But I think that's good because it's a, you, we have unique financial circumstances. And so I think sometimes it's um, comforting to know like, oh, he's going to get my specific situation. Yeah. Usually um, what I hear from clients when they first start working with us is they're normally like when they say I'm a doctor, most people are like, oh, like immediately think like, oh, you're super rich, yep. uh, which I wish was the case. Um, or it's like they're really impressed. And when someone tells me like, oh, I'm a doctor and I go, what specialty? And they say it, I'm like, oh, I know that's a lot of work. I know that's yeah. a lot. Immediately, I'm like, I get it because I've been there and all of our friends are there. Uh, so it's it's kind of a nice comforting place usually for them when it's not having a target on their back. Right. Or not feeling misunderstood. But like like they they the world thinks I'm one thing, but to know, you know, to to know like, oh, this guy gets me, I'm sure is very know that that is not the case. <laughs> right. right. It's similar with my clients and being married to a doctor. There's like these preconceived notions that a lot of people have about them that, yeah, that, that oh, are wait, different I, than I, the reality. They ask what Taylor does. And I'm like, oh, she's a pediatric pulmonologist. It's children's lungs. You know, I'm kind of dumbing it down a little bit. And they're like, oh, must be nice to be married to a doctor. I'm like, hmm, <laughs> that wasn't that fun. Man. That wasn't my dad. And we had to pay all that off. So, yeah. Yes, for wow, sure. Zero. But. Yes, exactly. Well, tell us, what's the first way that we can organize our financial life? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different ways that you can kind of go at this. But I think the first one is just taking an inventory of where everything is. And we use a software that's uh, called a mind map. And essentially, it's just a visual way of representing data. Almost think of it as like a spider web. You know, you're in the middle and then as it branches out, it's the big pillars of finance. So where do you bank? What kind of debt do you have? Where are your investments? And it's a real high level overview. So I wouldn't want you to start writing out like, oh, I bank at Wells Fargo and I've got, you know, $432.12. Like that's too much detail. It's mm-hmm. I bank at Wells Fargo, it's a checking and a savings um, or wherever you end up banking. It's not Wells Fargo, but and then as you go through your investments, I've got, you know, the TSP, I've got a 401k, some IRAs, um, you know, and here's the custodian, right? It's at TD Ameritrade as an example. And what this will do is it takes everything that's in your head and allows you to dump it in on the piece of paper to visually see everything on one sheet. And then yeah. from there, you can start to assess, okay, I need to get some statements for this. I need to maybe review this. Oh, there's an account I completely forgot about until I did this exercise, which usually happens. Uh, maybe I should check in and see what's happening with that account. All right. So it's just kind of the starting place uh, for, for getting things organized. This is so great because as you know, I'm a life coach and this is a podcast about mental health. And one of the things I ask my clients to do is to get all their thoughts out on paper. So not to judge them or to shame them, but just like, let's see what we're dealing with here. Like, let's just get it out in the open. And it's like the similarities are there, you know? Yeah. Looking at a blank piece of paper though is really scary. So I, I usually when we work with people or when I'm telling people is just to um, go on Google and just type in mind map and you'll see what one looks like and just kind of draw out some circles and, and then kind of plan it all out. There's software that's free that you can end up doing one mind map for free and not having to pay. I would highly encourage you do that versus just a sheet of paper and stare at it because uh, okay. it can get a little intimidating um, yeah. and it'll help you kind of put it together. Awesome. Great. Okay. So I get it all out. Then what? 
And then, uh, you know, and this goes really hand in hand with coaching and life planning, that w- which is what we do. And it's, you know, determining the short and long-term goals, right? So there's, there's things that you want to accomplish in the next three to six months. There's things you want to accomplish in the next three to five years. And then there's lifetime goals. Some of those might be health related, fitness related, um, could be community oriented, religious, you name it. There's going to be goals. And the reason why I'm having you do this first, before you start trying to figure out how to save money and where to invest and all that, because that stuff is important, but it's not the most important. The most important is what direction do you want to go in life? And then how can you have your money support those decisions? But if you don't know where those decisions are going, where that leads, if you haven't actually gone through that thought process, then you're kind of just getting in a car, driving across the country with no GPS. Yeah. It's kind of like figuring out your why, like why you, what's your, what's your end goal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, you might not know what the end goal is. And some people that's really intimidating going like, oh, I have to plan out my whole life now. No, let, let's just start with the big boulders. What is it? Well, I want to take a trip with the kids twice a year. Cool. Are you saving for that? Mm-hmm. Kind of, but not in, you know, directly. Okay. Well, let's make sure that as you start to go through cash flow planning and all the other stuff that happens in finance, that you earmark some money every month to save for those big trips that you want to do. And how do you feel about debt? And then you start creating, you know, different savings plans or, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things that come from this. And, and really this is the foundation of starting a financial plan. Do you ever find that your clients, like when you ask them those questions, they're like, I don't even know. Yeah, it's so we've got some exercises. So I, I utilize George Kinder's three questions uh, primarily, and I can, we won't answer them on air. Won't mm-hmm. put anyone into that pressure. But uh, <laughs> essentially, the first question he says is um, you know, you wake up and you have all the money in the world, all your, all your needs are taken care of. Pretend like you're Bill Gates if you want. Mm-hmm. How would you change your life? Would you change it? And what would you do? Right. So usually this is where all material things kind of start to pop up. Like, oh, I'd buy an island. I'd do a jet. I'd do whatever. Right. People have yeah. the craziest and awesome things that they can think of. The second question is uh, you go to the doctor and she tells you you have five to 10 years left to live. You won't feel sick and you'll have no notice of when you were to pass. Could be the first day of the fifth year or the last day of the 10th year. Would you change your life? And if so, how? And usually we see some of that material stuff kind of go away and that usually then starts to get closer to what you focus on and what's important. It's like, Oh, I wish I'd be able to take this trip with the kids or wish I'd be able to actually sit down and write that book. Everyone's got different stuff. Mm-hmm. A third question then is um, you, the, you go to the doctor, they tell you you have 24 hours left to live. Nothing can be done. Thinking back on your life. What did you miss? What did you not get to do? Would you not get to experience who you not get to be? It's not asking what you do in the 24 hours. It's asking for the reflective, almost like, do you have any regrets? Yeah. And it's a hard question, but that starts to like get the thought process going. Because if you answer those and sit down and truthfully answer those three questions and really think about it, goals start to pop out of nowhere. Like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. I've never had someone, we've done this hundreds of times with hundreds of physicians, never had someone say, Oh, I just really want to earn a whole bunch of money and then die. Like 
die with all this money. No, you want to do fun things. And it, some things don't cost anything, right? You can write a book and it's just time, mm-hmm. right? It's cost a lot of money. You want to take a safari trip to Africa with the, you know, the kids. It's an expensive trip. Yeah. But at least goals will start to come out of this kind of exercise. Those are such good questions. I wrote them down because I think, yeah, they just will open your brain up to like what your priorities are, right? And you can go through it in 20 minutes or you can take three hours. Like it's really up to you. And right. But I can just tell you after doing this so many times, the more thought and effort you put into the exercise, the more you will get out of it. Nice. I love it. Okay. So I've determined my short and long-term goals. What's yeah, next? What's step three? I think it's, it's, you can either go through with some document organization um, or you could start with tracking kind of how your money is coming in and out. So if you're really disorganized, start with document organization, right? Understand <laughs> where everything is. When I, when I hear, sorry to interrupt you, when I hear you say that, and so I'm just thinking in the minds of my listeners too, I'm like, ugh. Oh, sounds horrible. I know. This is like a general sending his troops to die. Like I know that is like loan <laughs> servicing. No one wants to actually talk to those people. But tell me cool. how it tell me yeah. how it's done. I'm listening. I'm ready. No, it's good. Um, so the the couple ways that you could do this is to have some just like I use Google for everything. And so we've got a folder structure in Google Drive, and it's you know, it's uh, cash flow planning, tax, you know, your goal planning where you write down some exercises that we just talked on. Um, it could be your insurance documents, your student loan documents, um, or other debt. And it's really just putting things in the right place. Most people like have a giant stack of paper that they've never done anything with that is mm-hmm. probably pretty important. Sometimes you see like, oh, that's, yeah, that's the original insurance policy that I signed. And it's like, do you have a digital copy? No. So let's actually scan that in and get it in the right place, right? So if you're really disorganized, you're going to have to spend some time getting organized and it stinks, but there's no way to build out a plan and to actually implement it without first knowing what's there. And then two, organizing everything together. And once you do it the first time and you get some process or habit around, hey, mail comes in, I actually sit down, I organize it. And one time a week I scan things in, it makes it really easy. You don't have to do it every single day. Yeah. Do you have like a list of all the important documents that your clients should? Yeah. Consider yeah. All that. Yeah. That. I'm happy to share that. They can email it to you and you can send it out to, to anyone who wants it. They can sign up for something. Awesome. Perfect. Out. Happy yeah. to do that. Because there's a long list of stuff that you may or may not have. Uh, but typically when we send clients that list, they're like, oh, I forgot about this random 403B from residency that we had that has a thousand bucks in it. Yeah. Yeah, It's a thousand bucks. Bring it in. Let's organize it, get it together and put it in its right place. So if you are somewhat organized, then the next piece would really is to understand how much money's coming in and how much money's going out. Most people can say with decent accuracy, how much money they make. Oh, $8,000 a month hits my bank account. Or if you're a resident, like $2,000 hits mm-hmm. a month. Right? You, you generally know what's going to hit your bank. Most people cannot remotely get even close to, well, how does that money leave your bank? Where does that money going? And so this is more of tracking your spending. And I call it the dreaded B word on the show because no one, as soon as you say the word budget, I feel like everyone immediately is <laughs> off their podcast. <laughs> Oh God, he said it, I'm out. Right? And it shouldn't be that way because budgeting actually like is what sets you free. 
And I don't think that it's just for people who are trying to save or get out of debt. Like even if you make a million dollars a year, you should have general idea of how money's flowing in and out. Like it's, tell, it's, tell, explain that a little bit more. Tell my listeners why budgeting sets you free. Because if you know how much you're saving or where your money's actually going, then you can assign it the job you want it to actually do, right? And if you go through the goals and you actually have short and long-term goals, and let's stick with the idea of, I want to take two vacations a year with the kids. Well, if you actually are tracking your spending, then you are putting money, you're signing that, you can only assign a, a dollar one job. And is it going to a job that is ultimately going to make you the happiest? Yes, some dollars are going to go to pay down debt and that stinks, but it allowed you to become a physician or if you're married to one, it allowed mm-hmm. you to, to actually live that, that life and have a fulfilling career. But there's other money that you, is discretionary that you get to tell it what to do. And if you're telling it, uh, I just spent a whole bunch of money on Amazon because I wanted that dopamine hit and I needed some random purchase to come to my house. Mm-hmm. That- feel better temporarily. Absolutely. And it's, it, I mean, it's everyone. We literally have a separate line item for every client for Amazon because everyone uses Amazon. So don't feel bad. Like my house included mm-hmm. uh, get plenty of Amazon boxes, but is that money best spent there? Or is there something else that you could allocate money to that would make you happier in, in the short term or the long term? Right? So if you came down to it and you're like, shoot, we wanted to take this trip, but now we don't have enough money or we go on the trip and we're constantly worried about money. We can't spend that. We can't go out to eat. We got to do this. We got to get crackers and water, you know, and and that's all we can do. Well, that's a horrible trip. You didn't plan appropriately. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you're tracking your spending, you're able to maybe allocate more funds to that, which might mean that you spend less somewhere else. Maybe it's Amazon. Like on Amazon. Right. Went out to dinner. There's other things because again, you have a finite amount of dollars. Well, and kind of what I hear you saying is when you budget, you're able to make decisions about what you want most more than just what you want in the moment. Because you're setting up a plan. Exactly. Right. Which isn't always in the moment. Like, like we blame the budget. <laughs> like the budget makes us unhappy, but it's actually just our thoughts about the budget. Oh, it's, it's almost all mindset and it's mm-hmm. building good behaviors. Behavioral finance is a very, very big part of just finance in general. And a lot of this comes from that, essentially, you're looking at it and going. And, and one thing that we hear all the time is, oh man, my, my budget got blown this month. And it's like, well, why? Well, you know, holidays and all this stuff. It's like, well, they come every time of year. Like, set it up 12 right. months in advance. Like I would <laughs> we celebrate Christmas in our house. I spend five, you know, $600 a month or uh, excuse me, $600 at Christmas time on gifts. Well, I should be saving $50 a month every month. So then when December happens, I already had the cash allocated and it didn't blow up my budget. It yeah. Was, Cause uh, even the verbiage, like my, the budget blew up. It's kind of like we abdicate responsibility. <laughs> like like it, I just have that thing to that software it's all yes exactly right okay so i've got my budget now what do i do yeah so i think you know again it comes back to um you know organization and and retention of documents and organizing you know your email or your snail mail right we all get messages from companies that want us to spend money with them if you have a spending problem you probably should unsubscribe from all of that but if you think of email we 
open up email. We usually end up doing whatever task it is or filing it away at some point. But with snail mail, it just usually gets picked up and then dropped on the table and someone will figure it out another day. We don't open up snail mail and sort through it and then stick it all back in the mailbox, right? Right. It doesn't happen. So as you have to have some type of rule or process for snail mail, just like you would normally for email. So in our house, wife grabs the mail, she sorts through it, takes anything that is important to her, sets all the important stuff for me. I let it sit there in our little bin. And one time a week, usually Friday mornings, I open it up. I either scan it, pay it, whatever it is, and I'm done. And it takes me 20 minutes. And I look at that mail literally for 20 minutes a week. So it's not some big crazy thing that you have to do daily, but it's something that you need to have some process around. For my emails, because of the podcast and clients and just our general finances, I get like hundreds of emails a day. It's insane. So I have to have some organization structure, otherwise I go nuts. And so I have one, you know, basically in Google, you can have a priority inbox, mm-hmm. and response needed, review needed, or awaiting response. So if I send something to someone, and I need it back, I'll just tag it. If I need to get to it, I'll make sure that it's a response needed. I got to get to it right away. Everything else sits at the bottom and I can archive it as if I need or unsubscribe. Mm-hmm. And you get lots of emails that are junk, just unsubscribe. Don't just keep deleting them like habit. No, that's great. I, my husband and I have a similar system with the snail mail and it works fantastically versus just letting it pile up or thinking about it, but not actually doing it, you know? And, um, and yeah, same, like it, it's all about just having a plan of what you're going to do with, with the mail, right? My new goal that I just started like three or four months ago with email was like, I get to zero by the end of the day. Oh, so <laughs> I so wish I could do that. I'm like one of those that would love inbox zero and I just can't get it done because I'm always either waiting for someone to respond or I need something, some interaction to occur. And right. And it doesn't always happen every day by the end of the day, but it's pretty close. But when I, before I did it, there were legitimately hundreds of thousands of emails in my inbox that I just like was, you know, one day I'll file those away or whatever, you know. So it it's goes double click and then archive all. I, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I did. I archived all of them. And I'm like, if it's important enough, someone's going to email me back. Oh, I wish and, I could do that. There's maybe <laughs> a limiting belief inside there for me, but I could help you work on that at some point. But well, <laughs> so that was step five, right? Am I counting right? Was that the fifth step? Uh, tracking your I kind of blended some together, you know, snail mail and some yeah. more. And then we get asked a lot about document retention. So I, I want to actually talk about that a little bit. So there's things that you instantly, instantly should just shred. There's, you know, or throw away, right? How many pizza coupons do you need? Throw them right, all away. Right, right. But there's some things that are really important. So um, I look at it as like a three-year rule, a seven-year rule, and kind of a forever rule. And I have a little actual filing system that I have in my office here. And it's basically three, seven and forever stuff that goes in the three year would be things like my annual credit card statements. I like okay. keeping that and being able to understand where, what it is we spent and being able to go back if I have to justify a cost for the business or whatever it may be. Uh, I usually keep receipts for larger purchases and it's not. So I remind myself how much I spent, but it's more like for warranties or mm-hmm. 
something breaks, I need to right. turn it. Um, little things I, I end up tossing. Like it's not a not a big deal if I don't save a thirty dollar receipt, but I spent three hundred dollars on something. I'm going to keep the receipt, and I'll keep those in the three year. And then any household bills that you either can't get online or that it's really hard to get online. So I'm thinking like when I pay a special assessment for my property tax, like probably need to keep that or my water bills, which are not online somehow. <laughs> to get San Diego well, up to date. It's <laughs> super old school and my water bill is not online. So I keep those just in case they come back and it's like, hey, we're going to lean your house because you didn't pay this bill. And I want to be able to show them, oh, I did pay it. Here was the check, old school check and mail that I ended up doing. Seven years. I want to keep bank statements. And if anyone's ever gone into their bank and pulled out statements, you realize that most banks and almost all of them only allow you to keep statements for two years online. And if you need statements past that, they're going to make you call in and usually there's a fee attached to it. So I want to go through and download my bank statements. And as you're going through these things, one thing you will notice if you truly listen and go through and do this stuff is that you're going to want to pare back what you have in turn and make things really simplistic. And this is a good way to force you to do that. If you're thinking, I'm never going to do what this guy's saying because I have five banks with 14 accounts and it's going to take me forever. Well, guess what? Go down to one bank and like three accounts and make this stuff simplistic. So it's really easy to maintain because I know that I would have a hard time managing five separate banks and a bunch of different accounts and I nerd out on money every day. So you probably <laughs> are not keeping control over how your money's flowing. And there's probably some random expenses that are hitting or things that are happening that you, you just can't actually pay attention to. So mm-hmm. uh, I would definitely keep you know the bank statements, um, urine pay stubs, anything that you're dealing with your tax returns, keep for seven years. I know statute of limitations is not that long, but I would keep everything and anything that either you did to complete your taxes or that you sent your accountant, keep everything for seven. Okay. All right. Put it all together in one thing, stick a rubber band around it, toss it in a drawer because you won't need to go back for your tax returns unless you get audited, which is going to stink, but you'll have everything there of how you actually were to complete. Right. And it sounds like the first time will be the most painful because then I'll pare down, like you said, then I'll simplify, right? Yep. So we're going through this with a lot of people in the financial fellowship, uh, which is the group coaching thing we do. And the, the thing that most people are saying as they're going through this was like, this stinks. This is a lot of work. And I'm like, well, how many accounts do you have? And they're like, way too many. I'm like, what are you going to do? And they're like, we're getting rid of all this stuff. Yeah. You're purging. It's you're a like, great way to purge. Your finances. And you're going to realize that this is a painful process to go through. But if you didn't go through it, you would have just left things kind of just willy-nilly flowing out of control and not paying attention. So as you go through and are organizing and doing some of these things, mm-hmm. it's going well, it to actually make it easier and you're going to pay more attention. Right. Which I've heard you talk about this before. Like so many of us just stick our head in the sand, right? Like an ostrich, because we uh, think if we, it's like we're the little toddler. If I close my eyes and they can't see me, then <laughs> I can't see them, then they can't see me. Right. Yep. Yeah, don't do that with your student debt. If you're doing that with your student debt, like please, please, please stop. Because that problem will just get bigger and not go away. So no ostrich with that. Um, and then the forever bucket, just to kind of round out this last piece, this would be things like your annual investment statements. So being able, so we custody at TD Ameritrade for clients and that's where my accounts are. If I 
at the end of the year when downloaded my statements so I know what's happening. If I bought stock, it'll tell me the cost basis. And that stuff's really important because if 20 years from now, if I went or 30 years, whatever it is, I go to sell some of the stuff. And if for some reason the custodian's records aren't perfect, I'm going to be in a world of hurt trying to figure out what did I buy this for? And I never ever uh, just shudder thinking that from the planner in me. I never want to have to go backwards and try to figure that out. So downloading those annual statements and keeping them just for your records, Um, insurance documents, the stuff that's probably sitting in a giant pile on your desk or on the floor in a corner at the, I'll get to that later Mm -hmm. thing. Uh, And that's everyone. I know you glanced over for a second. Everyone (laughs) looked at the actual pile, just so you know. (laughs) Everyone has it. Like if you're driving you're probably nodding your head too. Uh, or if you're in your office, you're probably like, oh man, he's here. <laughs> he's watching. Have, right? Yeah. And that's your insurance stuff. So if you got term insurance or disability coverage, you know, you want those actual documents backed up somewhere and not just free floating around the house. And that goes the same thing with your estate planning documents. So if you have your state, you know, will, power of attorney, healthcare directive, maybe a living trust, maybe not, depending on your situation you're going to want those estate planning documents also backed up and archived. If you went and got those put together, the attorney probably just gave you a nice fat binder with all this stuff in it. And it's probably sitting on a shelf somewhere. Mm-hmm. Scan it in and get all it right. in the computer just in case. Like, and I would keep that absolutely forever. Okay. So once I've got my things in the three buckets, my, in my document retention, what's next? So I think you can now start to do some analysis and this is where and I kind of will talk about these in tandem. It'd be negotiating bills as you're digging through your cash flow, but also setting up what I call sinking funds or savings accounts, if you will, uh, for certain things. So you don't pay your car insurance every month, right? You pay it every six months. Well, you should be saving every month for it. And if you're in debt, it's very, very important to start having a real conversation around your money and making sure that you're saving for these things ahead of time. Because what you don't want to do is forget about that large you know, purchase that happens every six months or annually or even quarterly, and then have to fall back and potentially back into credit card debt to pay for something that you just potentially forgot. So setting up a sinking fund will allow you to save for those random off irregular expenses. And you can do that in a separate savings account. And then when the car insurance comes due and you owe $800, you move it up to your checking account, you can pay it out. You've already pre-saved for it. So I would definitely look at setting up some type of sinking funds. It could also be for more fun things because that first one sounds terrible, I know. Yeah. So you can do this for like travel, right? You don't want to take those trips. You want to spend, you know, $6,000 for the year. You got to save $500 a month. And when you book the travel tickets, move the money up and you pay yourself essentially. Well, all those questions that you had that you referred to at the beginning about, you know, what are your regrets and all of that, those can help you decide these kind of things, right? Like where do you really, where do you really value? What do you really value in your life that you want to put more money to? And what, what maybe like in the moment you're just spending money on, but like, it's not really one of your values that you could pull out. And I'll, and I'll say like, as you start to really uncover these things, and if you are listening and actually going to do some of these things, there's going to be mistakes. And Everything from this point backwards, just forgive yourself, forget it. Realize you've already done it. You've already potentially made the mistake. No matter, I don't care if it's super tiny or gigantic and you bought some horrible policy that you don't need. 
and you wasted thousands of dollars, it's okay. It's totally fine. You so will you're telling re- me not to beat myself up about Absolutely poor not. money choices in the past that it actually Absolutely. won't help me at all. No, because then you're just, it's going to be, it's going to make this a lot more difficult because you're going to realize you probably have quite a few mistakes and then you're less likely to continue because you're going to be feeling bad or guilting yourself into like, gosh, I can't believe I did all this. And then either you're going to turn into the ostrich and just be like, I don't care. I'm not doing any more of it. Uh, or, or I'm going to go on Amazon to feel better. <laughs> right? That's what we do. I'm just go stroll down Target, buy a few things to make me, myself feel better temporarily. I, I don't think I've ever seen a Target bill under $100. I don't know how that's possible. But <laughs> yeah, Amazon's a bunch of little death by a thousand cuts because you're ordering a ton of stuff all the time. Target is just... You go in for a toothbrush and you come out with like $130 of something. I can't... Throw pillows. That's what we came out with, Ryan. Throw pillows. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't come out with throw pillows, but I come out with like the most obscure thing. And I'm like, how did I just do... What happened? No, but I think that's such an important point to make. Like it's like when you're looking back at your decisions from the past, like there's just no upside to beating yourself up about it. You can learn from it and be like, next time I won't do that. I'm so glad that I figured that out, Right. Learn from the mistake and yeah. don't make it again. That's right. the best thing that can come out of this. Exactly. What's next? The other one that I'd, I'd probably toss into this as you're doing some analysis and trying to figure things out and you're inside your cash flow is negotiating bills. Like, are there things that you can actually call and negotiate? Did you uh, have in one of those things that we end up normally just forgetting is internet or TV. And then the price usually expires after like two years that they locked you in some introductory rate. Well, if you just call them up and say, hey, I want my introductory rate again, or I'm going to go to your competitor. Usually they're like, oh, okay, no problem. Like, yeah. Absolutely not a big deal because it's cost them more money to go find another you, another client, than it would for them to just say, sure, you can have the introductory rate that we're already giving to a bunch of new people anyway. Mm-hmm. That's an easy one. Uh, but negotiate some of those bills. Now, you're, are you going to call up and negotiate your electric prices? Like, no. Stop using so much electricity the only way you're going to lower that bill, but there's things that you can negotiate. And the other one is like reviewing your subscriptions. Like, do you really need Amazon prime, Hulu, Disney plus Netflix? Like, right. Which ones are you using? Yeah. Pick one or two. And we're guilty of this. Like we, I did our annual review. I did it in December when I was actually sick and was going through like, what are subscriptions? And we had Netflix and Hulu. And I was like, honey, do we really need this? She goes, oh, I thought we canceled Hulu a while ago. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I don't watch. TV. Learn from your mistake, though, Ryan. Right? We're not going to nope. beat, beat us up, beat yourself up about it. No, no, not at all. Not at all. And I know the charge. I thought she was watching. She's like, no, I, I don't really watch it anymore. I'm like, all right, it's all good. Great. So, so I negotiate my bills. Then what? Yeah, and I think the last one is there's some really useful apps that'll help you. And I will give a disclaimer here, like you have to be comfortable logging into things and having access to your accounts in order for this to really help you. Um, some of them already know everything about you anyway, like Google. I mm-hmm. use Google for absolutely everything for our personal and for our business and for all of our clients. Um, seriously, everything like the email, you know, Google Sheets, Google Docs, shared calendars. Uh, I use it for everything. So they already know, so I'm okay and comfortable with that. Actually, a cool trick with a shared calendar is there's things that you're going to need to do. Let's take um, like you're going to make your IRA contributions for the year at 6,000 bucks. Well, if you can save and actually make that contribution, there's a time limit that you have to make that by. 
you should create a Google calendar for whatever that task is and set a notification to email you. And then you can hide that calendar. So I have a financial calendar with different things like need to make sure the water bill is paid. I need Mm -hmm. to make sure that some of these things that are more manual are done. And so I have one separate calendar. I put everything on it with the due date. I have a notification to email me and then I hide the calendar. So I don't have to look at it all the time, but I still get the reminders and I never forget anything. So you have a special calendar, like a separate calendar. The from your you have any amount of calendars you want. Right? Yeah, one for hockey ticket. You know, the when the Vegas Golden Knights play, I have like their little hockey thing and watch hockey. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't want to see it all the time, so I can just literally uncheck the box and never see it again. Well, I do that same concept, but I do it for finances, and so I have a bunch of little things that I have to do for our own personal finances, and it's on a calendar. It'll email me when that task or event comes due. And that way I'm reminded to go and pay that bill or to do something or to look mm-hmm. for that piece. Is there, you know, is, do I have to put more money in our escrow account because our taxes went up a little bit? Well, I've got a due date for that to go look and make sure that my escrow account is going to be filled. Oh, great. That's such a practical idea. Awesome. Yeah. Another software that we use, and it's been approved by like FINRA and the SEC and, you know, because you start talking about passwords, things get really sensitive quickly. Um, but it's called LastPass. And I know there's a couple competitors to this. I just happened to have used LastPass for like five years. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's you put in your email and one master password. And that is your like way to access the vault of your passwords. Mm-hmm. And then when you go to a new site or a site you always go to, you can reset the password to something crazy complex. So like my bank password is 20 numbers, digits, letters, whatever. I can't tell you even what one of them is but it remembers it in my vault secure. So as long as I can remember one password then every other password I have can be crazy complex and I never have to remember it because before this, most of us have the same password or little variations of a password like ABC one, two, three, like in the next time it's ABC one, two, three. And you're like, this is a horrible (laughs) password. Uh, Well, you can get rid of all that and everything can be, actually secured with LastPass and then you can share it with your spouse. So if, you know, Taylor needs access to something that I am kind of the lead person on, like if she needs access the um, San Diego Gas and Electric, say something happened to me and I want her to have it, I'm going to share it with her. And so she doesn't need to remember a password or even have to know how to get into mine. I've given her access mm-hmm through that software. And it's like $12 a year or something super cheap. Awesome. I love that one. If you're going to jump into your finances and try to figure out cash flow, I used to talk about a company called Tiller a lot. Um, It essentially allows you to pull in all the data feeds into a Google sheet. Most people don't like spreadsheets. So if you do, you can check them out. Uh, But we've been using um, for clients and and ourselves personally, um, software called You Need a Budget or YNAB. And it's been I really, use YNAB. Yeah. Fantastic. Really helpful to do that. Um, so YNAB allows you to do those sinking funds all within one savings account. So I was saying like separate accounts. If you're a YNAB user, you don't actually need that. And you can make it even simpler. But most people aren't YNAB users. So you would need to break it out um, for those separate ones. Uh, all the stuff around credit, your credit scores, getting hacked, whatever it may be. I use Credit Karma. It's free. It'll alert you. If, so, if there's a change in your credit, 
every week on Saturdays, they update the credit scores. Like if you really care about the number, I really don't care about the number as more as I care about what's in your credit report itself. And it doesn't run a hard credit pull or anything. It's imagine it's like a read only version of your credit report. Okay. And you can go to other places and do this, but I like credit karma because if there's any change in my credit, whether I apply for a new credit card or someone else steals my identity, it's going to ping me on my phone and come as a notification on the top of my phone. Like there was a change to your credit. Did you do this? And that to me, I love that real time feedback. Yeah. It just gives you that security. Yeah. And then the last one isn't really an app, even though I guess they technically do, but it's a bank and it's Ally Bank. I absolutely love Ally. It's an online bank. It is super simple to use. If you connect it to the debt aggregators, like for YNAB or Tiller or Mint or any other budgeting software, it's like the only one that doesn't break. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not super technical on knowing why that's the case, but it's high yield savings. You don't ever get charged fees. Really simple to use. If you still need checks, they're free. I've loved everything about them. The only thing is they don't have a brick and mortar store. So if for some reason you're balling and you deposit checks more than $50,000 in a day, that is probably not going to work for you. Unfortunately, I'm not that cool. So <laughs> not yet. Checks. Not yet. I don't think ever, <laughs> uh, but I will come back on if I am that cool. All right. <laughs> not that cool. Uh, so that's the, the downside is for mobile banking, you would need a brick and mortar. Uh, and also if you wanted a safety deposit box, you need an old school brick and mortar place that you can bank at, but that doesn't mean you have to do all your banking. It just means you need to have an account there. Uh, yeah. So Ally, I love it. Uh, I guess another downside is it doesn't have business banking, uh, which is a bummer. But, okay. Yeah. Those are great resources. Thank you so much. Can I ask you one last question? I know my listeners are going to want to know about. Anything tell, about. tell us what, what you think about public service loan forgiveness. Oh, okay. So PSLF has been getting a lot of publicity as more and more people, not just physicians, but more and more people are in the program. And we're seeing these huge rejection rates. And of course, the media being who they are, mm-hmm. want to exploit this without reporting all the facts. So, oh, 99% rejection rate, everyone freaks out and I get a thousand phone calls. It, it's okay. It'll be fine. The people that were actually applying and trying to get forgiveness Some of them didn't have the 120 payments you actually need. Some of them didn't have direct loans. Some of them weren't even in like the right repayment. They weren't Mm -hmm. in repay or IBR pay. They were in something different. There's lots of reasons why these people got rejected. The program is fine. All the laws that are being proposed. I know some of the candidates are saying they're going to wipe student debt clean for everyone. I don't think that'll happen. But from the laws that are being proposed around student loans and PSLF specifically, they're written for new borrowers. And so what a new borrower is, is truly that, like from its basic form, someone who's never borrowed money before. So if you have gone through and you're in med school, or you're in residency, or you start making payments as an attending or a resident, you are totally fine and grandfathered in to any changes that they're making. So I don't think... PSLF is going anywhere, especially for anyone in the program. There's a legal definition or legal term called estoppel. You entered in a contract, you signed off this debt, you've relied on this. They can't go back and change this uh, for people who are already in it. So everything truly proposed for new borrowers. 
Awesome. That will, I know, give my listeners some peace of mind. So thank you so much. And thank you for being here. How can my listeners like find out more about you? Tell them the name of your podcast again. And you have a website, I'm guessing, right? If they want to work with you further. Yeah. So if you want to check out the podcast, um, you know, we've got financial residency podcast on iTunes. Uh, We put out two shows a week. Uh, Monday shows are, are really informational based. So we're tackling a certain subject or topic. The Friday shows, people in our community anonymously volunteer to fill out a Google form. And basically it's got, you know, what are your top five goals? What are your investments, your debts and all that kind of stuff. And we do, my partner and I, Casey, we do basically a free financial plan on air for someone in the community that wants to volunteer their information. So if you don't want to pay an advisor and you want to just get to advisor's opinion for free on kind of what we see with Mm -hmm. whatever information you put out, um, you know, you can go to financialresidency.com slash form, F-O-R-M, and fill it out. And we've got kind of a backlog of like four or five months, but we'll get to it if you end up nice. doing it, a voicemail. Happy to, happy to do it. Um, so yeah, and you can go check out the blog. We usually push out one or two blogs, uh, articles on something relevant for physician finances at financialresidency.com. Great. Thank you so much, Ryan. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's fun.